0: Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine and More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers.
1: We have breaking news: Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon has been, been indicted, indicted,
2: indicted by, by a, a
3: grand jury president. and arrest they warrant. We are told injury, to indicting insanity. Bannon. Grand jury now has indicted
4: Steve Bannon for contempt of
3: Congress. Welcome to Talking Feds. A roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The nail-biting drama as to whether the Department of Justice would accept Congress's entreaty to indict Steve Bannon for blowing off the subpoenas of the January 6th Select Committee came to a sudden conclusion at week's end with the news that a grand jury in the District of Columbia returned a two-count indictment against Trump's former Svengali for willful noncompliance for testimony and documents bannon and a series of witnesses who have as much as dared congress and the department to make them obey the law are now face to face with the prospect of a criminal conviction and while that might not induce the firebrand bannon who already operates on the outskirts of society to respect congress's authority it could be a huge hammer against the likes of mark meadows and peter clark The indictment served as half of a formidable one-two punch with the opinion from the D.C. District Court soundly rejecting Trump's claim to executive privilege in the face of the decision of President Biden not to invoke it. If that opinion holds up, the scofflaw defendants, who are mainly in Trump's inner circle, will lose all legal cover. This week also featured in the Rittenhouse case yet another trial that slipped its immediate context in court and looked to be shaping up as a divisive national litmus test on issues of race, gun rights, and vigilantism. To help us understand the implications of these two monumental stories and other events of the week, we are really pleased to welcome a superb panel of expert commentators. And they are... Alison Camerata, here for the first time, a journalist, author, and current co-anchor of CNN Newsroom Weekdays from 2 to 4 o'clock. In her three decades in journalism, she's won two Emmy Awards. In 2017, she published her debut novel, Amanda Wakes Up, which was selected by NPR as one of the best books of the year. She is currently working on a memoir, and it may or may not include the salad days in New York when, believe it or not, <laughs> we hung out together. You got to talk to it, Allison. Very nice to see you on Talking Feds.
5: Oh, Harry, great to see you too. And I, I hope that our checkered past comes out.
3: <laughs> in deposition. All right. Rick Wilson, a political consultant turned political writer. He's co-founder of the Lincoln Project, a lifelong Republican, He was an early critic of President Trump, and as an unselfish public service, he has turned his expertise in the dark arts into a steady onslaught of ads highlighting the 45th president's iniquity. (laughs) He, too, has published two books, Everything Trump Touches Dies and the recent Running Against the Devil. Welcome back to Talking Feds, Rick Wilson. Harriet, it's great to be back with you. And... Jen Rubin, an opinion columnist for The Washington Post. She covers politics, foreign and domestic policy. She's a commentator on MSNBC. And prior to her work with The Post, she wrote for Commentary Magazine, and before that, was a labor law attorney for two decades. She too is an author. Give us the title of your new book, Jen Rubin, and what it's about.
1: The title is Resistance: How American Women Saved Democracy from Donald Trump. Perhaps it was too premature, actually. Now that I'm beginning to think about it. it. <laughs> All
3: right, you can pick that up. It's available at Amazon and everywhere else. And speaking of. Right now, just as we were sitting down or about a half an hour ago, the hot breaking news, Steve Bannon, after three weeks, after much teeth gnashing, after Mm. much nose thumbing, has been indicted on two counts. We have Alison Kamerotic here and all the resources of CNN at her disposal because she can actually tell us just what this indictment says. Allison, what has the good grand jury charged?
5: OK, there are two counts of contempt of Congress. I have it in my hot little hands, the indictment. We were just on the air when one of those moments happens. Breaking news. <laughs> it's happening right now. Scramble everybody into position. Print out the indictment. And, you know, we're reading it in real time.
3: What you live for. What you live for the yeah, news I, I mean, business. I mean, I do. Like, yeah. that, actually, I
5: do. And, <laughs> yeah. and those are exciting moments. We didn't get a heads up. We didn't know that this one was happening. But as I was just telling you guys, I really appreciate this indictment because it's like indictment for dummies. It's truly spelled out in non-legalese, understandable English. So basically, here's, I think, the heart of the matter. On October 7th, 2021, by 10 a.m. deadline, Bannon did not appear before the select committee did not produce documents and communications, did not provide a log of withheld records, did not request an extension of time, and did not certify that he had conducted a diligent search for those records. And then it says that the committee got a letter on October 7th saying that he would not comply with the subpoena because former President Donald J. Trump had claimed executive privilege. And so that's the heart of why they then now are holding him in contempt.
3: charging him with it. And there you have it. Everyone's been waiting with bated breath for this. And I just want to make a quick legal point. Notice, this includes certain obligations that anybody would have, even if he had a valid claim for privilege. And there's no real defense. He needed to have a privilege log. He needed to show up and make retail objections. And he didn't do any of that, as in fact, none of Trump's soldiers have for many years. He's just completely treated it as he could totally forget about it and be high-handed. So those obligations, even if they find that he has some issues of intent on the executive privilege, are still right there and he's still knowingly violated them. But much bigger news on the political and cultural front. So Rick and Jen, how big a game changer? What do you see as the
1: implications here? Oh, I think this is big. (laughs) I think this is the end of the road for the Trump folks' loyalty to the orange man. It's one thing to give some BS excuse for not showing up. It's one thing to go on Fox and spew this nonsense. It's another to face civil or criminal penalties for contempt of Congress. And I would say those who have been super critical of this Justice Department by moving too slowly, by not running to indict the former president, should perhaps recalibrate. This was a swift, as we know, this does not always happen this fast, but a swift move to a grand jury, which is also significant, I think, putting it in the hands of fellow citizens. And it is a serious charge. And I think it is Wonderful timing, frankly, that it comes the same week as a D.C. district court judge finds that this notion of a former president's executive privilege is nonsense and Trump doesn't have it and these people can't hide behind it. And although that has gone to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, I have no doubt, particularly with the panel that they drew, that the lower court's ruling will be affirmed. And in fact, just reading through that lower court opinion, she very cleverly spends a lot of time on Trump versus Mazars, which is the Supreme Court's own opinion, basically disputing these elaborate, extensive claims of privilege from the ex-president. So I think this is big. It should put the fear of God into Mark Meadows, who's on the verge of contempt himself it should send out the word to all the rest of them. And there are now quite a number of outstanding subpoenas that this is the end of the line. And I think it means that the courts and the Justice Department and the Congress are serious and nothing could please me more than to finally have these people, as you said, the responsibilities that any citizen would have to appear to give testimony, to provide documents.
2: You know, I'm just a simple country campaigner, I'm <laughs> not a lawyer like the rest of y'all. But I'm going to say this. The thing that was the most amusing to me was that Bannon, he made a claim of executive privilege or, or an anticipatory claim of executive privilege that we knew would be echoed by every one of these other mokes and scales and weirdos that were on the, on the hit list. And... Bannon's job had been to like work for his Chinese sugar daddy for the last three years before that. He was out of the White House for a long, long time. And just because you occasionally communicate with the president as a civilian does not give you a claim of executive privilege. So I thought it was a really weirdly weak approach from the beginning. And now he has put all these other people and they don't have a Chinese billionaire for a sponsor like Steve Bannon does. They don't have the resources from a career like Steve Bannon does. Mark Meadows is broke; he didn't have any money. That guy cannot afford to go and try to litigate his way to freedom out of this thing. He will roll. And I will say there's some other folks like Bill Stepien. Yeah, you were already saying
3: he was going to break, right? Yeah,
2: Bill Stepien is a weak personality. When we destroyed Pascal last year, we knew Stepien would come in. And we knew what a nervous Nelly the guy is. He's a weak player. So he'll break. These guys, they'll talk tough. They're going to hold the line for the president. But in the end of the day, once the Justice Department is involved and you're indicted by the Justice Department, they're not screwing around anymore. This will unwind a lot of this. And by the way, you probably can't see this, but on my wall back there is a thing that a friend sent me. That's the court picture of Bannon
3: in his original fraud hearings, just because I love anything that causes Steve Bannon pain. And by the way, he may have a billion dollars behind him, but that doesn't help if you're going into the pokey. Correct. Allison, I want your general thoughts, but also let's focus a little bit on Meadows, on the one hand, as Jen pointed out, he's someone who might have had a better claim. But this one two punch, if the Chutkin opinion holds up, which basically will stand for the proposition one president at a time, Biden makes the call, then Meadows is as bankrupt in asserting executive privilege as any of them. And by the way, no one has asserted it. They've just said, oh, maybe in case they do, we have to protect.
5: Well, I have a couple of thoughts, but first, I have some questions. When you and Jen, the lawyers, say that this yep. is the end of the line, what is the sentence? What are the repercussions for a contempt of Congress? I mean, is there a jail term? What does there that There is a jail like?
3: term up to a year. So not huge. Maybe he thinks he can do it, but jail time. Door closed. The hard
4: yard.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I know that Steve Bannon has a preference for yachts over the penitentiary. But do you think that like a couple month jail term will make his loyalty dry up? I think Steve Bannon, Jen, has approached this not only as loyal to Trump, but as just a big F.U., Mm -hmm. middle finger to sort of the establishment. So do you think that really a two-month jail term is the end of line for him?
1: Well, the sentence runs up to a year until you break, until you decide to come forward. So it's not going to be artificially cut off. It could go for a whole year. I guess we're going to see what how tough he really is. It's one thing to run around saying all this stuff. But sitting behind bars, being deprived of his double-layered polo shirts, not being able to fly on public jets. But look, the
3: die is cast with Bannon. He now can't say never mind. I totally take your point, Allison. Yeah, two months, it might make him more of a the sort of scruffy hero he wants to be. Mark Meadows, Jeff Clark a conviction that probably is career-ending if they want to be a lawyer, if they want to have some purchase and influence in Washington. So it's about the 15 who have gotten subpoenas and about the 150 who may now increase, who are already cooperating. Steve Bannon is now a martyr, a sacrificial lamb. Call him what you will. But he's done. He's toast. He can't come back. What about Mark Meadows, though? What about Jeff Clark? What about John Eastman? What about... Bernie Carrick. What about Rudy Giuliani?
5: I agree. I mean, obviously this is a game changer because this is what everybody has been waiting to see if there would be some teeth and some consequences. And so now they get the message. This is as valuable for whatever's going to happen with Steve Bannon as it is for the message it sends to them, obviously. And they are in a different category.
1: And it really highlights how things went off the rails during the impeachment. When there was no mechanism to force these witnesses, everyone from Don McGon to John Bolton to step forward because the Trump Justice Department was never going to go and get an indictment. And it just shows you that when this is somewhat behind us, maybe behind us, the importance of Congress having an enforcement mechanism that doesn't depend upon the administration you are trying to investigate authorizing a contempt proceeding. And there's been some talk of that. Adam Schiff is sponsoring legislation that would make a whole lot of reforms to try to contain the executive branch and beef up Congress's role. But this is a perfect example of why you have to let Congress do its job. It was kind of fun reading that Chuken opinion when she lists all the things that Congress could actually do with this information. Oh, you could disqualify all these congressmen from holding office under the 14th Amendment, (laughs) Section 3. You could come up with new uh, fail-safes so that the president couldn't abuse his power. I think it was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it was a great reminder. You have to let Congress do its job. You have to allow them to force people to come forward and to provide information. I think the most nervous person probably in America after Mark Meadows is probably Donald Trump because his Operation has always been delay, obfuscate, lean on these people. It is a shorter timeline than he imagines. We're going to get an opinion out of the DC Circuit, I think, very quickly. And we might not even get a decision for the Supreme Court. They might just cite Mazars and bump it back.
3: Well, that's the other big point, of course. I'm back to your one two punch, Jen, because there's been a game changer going on in real time also which is that the D.C. Circuit took the Chutkin opinion, which, as you say, was thorough, methodical, and I think has to be Right, but there's some issues to wrestle with. And they gave it a schedule that is warped speed for the Court of Appeals. They're going to be hearing it the end of November. There's going to be a decision mid December, probably, and then a little bit of futzing around with rehearing on Bonk. And then it will come to the Supreme Court. But if by six weeks from now, we have a pretty established principle that there's no executive privilege based on anything that Donald Trump says. That's the fourth limb that's cut off from them. And that makes a kind of layup for any criminal contempt prosecutions. And one other thing, everyone's been waiting, waiting, waiting for Garland Thompson today when he talked about Meadows said, maybe we'll do civil contempt because you can do civil contempt if it can happen very quickly. And as you say, civil contempt, remember Susan McDougall, you are again. In the pokey until you talk. So if it could actually happen in any kind of viable timeline that wouldn't defeat the January 6th committee, it itself could be a very potent tool. And all of a sudden, the courts are very aware of timing in a way they seemed not to be under the Trump administration. I think that's
2: a really good point, Harry. The Trump and Bannon forces really expected they could run out the clock. That's a centerpiece of their strategy. Let's be honest, there were some Democrats, On the committee, who would rather be talking about infrastructure and healthcare and other things? You know, I got in a little bit of a brouhaha with them a couple of weeks ago, but it was a good poke for them to have to remind them these people are playing by rules that you are not. They're playing by rules where. They're trying to run out the clock. They're trying to run out the political attention span in Washington. They're trying to make this boring and tiring and pedestrian and to just say, F you until the lights go out. Well, as you said, the courts now seem to have a greater attention span on this and a better focus on just how important time is.
5: I just want to say that there has to be some justice. You know, I feel like that people, regardless of what side you're on, there's sort of this innate desire for justice. Okay. And the idea that all of these people could flout the rules and there wouldn't be any consequences. And it was too complicated to ever charge them with anything. And they were going to run out the clock. That's just not satisfying. And so to know that rules still apply is important because for a long time, particularly when president Trump was in office, there was this feeling that, yeah, they do apply, but not to him. And not to his inner circle. And so today feels like something different.
3: In a nutshell, I think this is where Merrick Garland wound up. This was a thorough process and it needed to be. It's a criminal indictment, but there were some tricky legal issues, some tricky fact issues. But I do think at the end of the day, he weighs everything. And that really is it. It's just the rule of law vis-a-vis Congress and, and investigations. It's just out the window if they didn't do something.
1: I also want to do a little bit of speculation. Merrick Garland has been cast as someone who is overly cautious and has supposedly no interest in going after the higher ups in the January 6th investigation. I think This suggests that something else is going on and he is very much engaged with this. There has got to be coordination between the Justice Department and the January 6th hearing. It would be peculiar in the extreme. If he went to court, got indictments for contempt of Congress, these people produce evidence of a conspiracy to incite a riot and overthrow the government. And then what? Garland turns around and does nothing? I don't think so. I think he is using Congress as his own grand jury, frankly. Let them collect these people. He's going to be right there helping them to do it as they mount this pile of evidence. But the notion that somehow he wants to put this behind us or he doesn't want to be seen as too political, I think this suggests that he is, as they say, letting the facts dictate where They will go. He is not going to let the Justice Department be smeared as a partisan outfit simply because they're enforcing subpoenas. And when this comes out, depending upon what these people say, I think we are moving to a period where potentially he's going to have little choice but to move forward on some criminal matters.
3: Right. It's tricky. This is a precedent. And you had to know, no matter what the process in the department, I I can just speak from having been there, including with him. The executive privilege jocks, they are very strong in the department. And the OLC people, and there was a memo here. So he had plenty to work through. But look, I'm with you. Forceful, methodical. People were tearing their hair out. But at the end of the day, fair rule of law. Take the win. Take the
0: win. Take the win.
3: (laughs) We could go for a few hours on this. Let me close out by turning to what had been the burning news just a few hours ago, but I think it still burns, Mike Pence. We have an interview where the former president of the United States basically says, you know, just common sense that a crowd was ready to tear him limb from limb. Insouciant, I think, would be the legal word, and didn't give a (laughs) crap would be the other word. So what's this got to do, especially combined with what's happened today with Pence? And his circle, is this a new crowd of people who will clearly have their daggers out for Donald Trump? I, I got to tell you,
2: I think if you snuck up behind Mike Pence and yelled Trump, he would soil himself. He's so <laughs> afraid of being killed. <laughs> oh, and, and look, we've known a lot of Republican members and a lot of Republican elected officials who they may be publicly Trump, but when you talk to him in private, it's like, look, I don't want those crazy people to come and harass my family. I don't want them to come and knock on my door. I don't want them to come to my office. I don't want them to come and try to kill me. And they're afraid. They live in fear. And Mike Pence is in a unique position because he's the only vice president that I know of, a pretty decent presidential historian, where the president at one point stood by as people were chanting, hang Mike Pence. And that was being reported, by the way, contemporaneously. It wasn't something we found out later. The president's mob went after him, and he could have easily been killed. Mobs do what mobs do. And there was a chance that somebody took the wrong turn or opened the wrong door, and there's Mike Pence, and there's the crowd. And it gets crazy.
3: And of course, Trump, now he could say, yeah, that really got out of hand, etc." No, he doubles down, no, quadruples no. down as he did with McCarthy. Oh, just common sense. People were upset. And I knew Mike Pence was safe. We got some accounts of Mike Pence cowering under tables and being ushered away by the Secret Service. I don't think Mike Pence felt that he was all that safe January 6th.
1: I think there are a couple points here that are worth underscoring. First of all, when Trump tries to run against in 2024, I guess this means Pence won't be on the ticket. <laughs> and secondly, Trump seems not to understand the concept of admissions against interest. Every time he does this, he is giving fodder to a potential prosecution. And remember, there are civil suits also under the Klan Act that convey that there was intentionality here, that he didn't mind, that this wasn't a surprise, that this didn't just kind of happen. And so every time he opens his trap to make one of these statements, he puts another arrow in the quiver of either civil litigants, or if it comes to that, the Justice Department. And the amount of evidence that you have in a case like this never, ever happens in a case. When do you have a telephone recorded where one candidate is telling the Secretary of State, find votes for me? When do you have a situation in which a president of the United States has multiple witnesses who are trying to reach him? He's refusing to come to the rescue of Congress and his own vice president. And there are a zillion witnesses. Oh, and by the way, there is a headquarters set up at a hotel, which is specifically designed to make sure that Trump has his shot at keeping the presidency.
3: Everyone who was there, by the way, those group of subpoena recipients, they are really sweating it today, exactly. too. Allison, you look exactly. like you're ready to jump in here. It's hard when you're not the anchor, right? It's not as easy to just... (laughs) I have to In fact, maybe I'll keep interrupting (laughs) you and just keep you... No, sorry, go ahead.
5: No, Harry, I think that the legal aspect of all of that is really fascinating. But I have always ever since I first began interviewing Donald Trump, been fascinated by the psychological aspect of it. And I don't think you can divorce the two. Look, I'm always careful on the air because obviously I'm not a, as I've said, licensed therapist. However, (laughs) I have interviewed enough psychiatrists and psychologists and read the DSM-3 manual of the description. It is impossible to get past the malignant narcissism of that statement, of what Trump said to Jonathan Carl. And one of the things that I was struck by in that statement to Jonathan Carl that he includes in his book is a narcissist who suffers from delusions of grandeur has to rope you in to their bizarro world because you're having a conversation. So you are sort of drawn through the looking glass when you're talking to them. And so you hear President Trump goes. Well, you know, John, I think it's understandable. <laughs> I think it's total common sense because you know, when it's a fraudulent vote, as it's one Jonathan does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And Jonathan Crocos, goes, Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because what you want to say is time out. That is bad shit. Crazy. What <laughs>
3: planet are you on? No, but keep them talking, keep them talking, but, right? But,
5: but you yes, but keep them talking. Right. And so you end up getting sucked into this vortex of crazy. And I find it so upsetting, yet I know how it happens. Anytime. I've interviewed President Trump. There's a feeling of you go into his world. He doesn't come out to your your reality. You have to kind of dive into his world to get him talking like this. And it's always upsetting. And by the way, I don't even know what the psychological terminology is for what mike pence is suffering from like the the sycophancy patterned wife syndrome (laughs) to say we're still pals and i have lunch with him and we're all good and bygones and whatever why why would you do that to somebody who didn't really care what was going to happen to you that day
3: all right it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor total wine and more each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a
0: particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, we pop into the beer aisle for a closer look at the two main types of beers, ales versus lagers. And to help separate lagers from ales, it first comes down to one thing, fermentation. Fermentation. That's the process where the yeast does its magic to give the beer its alcohol content and carbonation. Now, ales are fermented with top-fermenting yeast at warm temperatures, somewhere between 60 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit, whereas lagers are fermented with bottom-fermenting yeast at colder temperatures, between 35 and 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Because of their warm fermentations, ales can generally ferment and age in a relatively short period of time, 3 to 5 weeks. Lagers can take longer, up to six to eight weeks. The difference in temperatures and time means this. The quicker fermentation in ales, including stouts, hefeweizens, pale ales, and IPAs, creates a fruitier, spicier flavor that's crisp and refreshing. At Total Wine & More, we have over 1,100 ales, so you can explore all you want. Lagers, including Helles, Pilsners, have a smoother, richer, more mellow and robust flavor than ales, thanks to their longer fermentation time. We can thank the Bavarian brewers from the Middle Ages for discovering the benefits of longer fermentation after storing their brews in ice caves during the winter. In fact, lager in German means to store, which adds up since lager beer was brewed, covered, and stored with ice harvested from nearby lakes. At Total Wine & More, we have an ice cave of our own filled with a huge selection of ales and lagers from around the world. Just remember the next time you enjoy one, give a little cheers to fermentation. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting.
3: Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right. I think we all agree. Really big news and really bad news for the president and his circle. Really good news. And I shouldn't say good or bad. They were really focused on Trump and what happened. It looks like maybe the huge sprawling DOJ investigation is not going to make a lot of headway there. So actual real prospects of finding out what went on. So that's really good news for us. Let's just play out, though, are they now sufficiently emboldened, the committee, that the final frontier here, I think, would be Will they have a showdown with Republican members, the Louis Gomez and Kevin McCarthy's who might have been involved and in any event certainly have good information to provide? They are a part of the story. But talk about stepping on a hornet's nest. Are they now going to go that route or try to make their case and report without it?
1: I think they have to. That's part of the reason for getting all this information is figuring out who was talking to who. Who was calling whom? Where the emails? And so you have to. So you're not going to just go in blind with one of these lunatics and say, okay, did you help the people or not? You're going to find a body of evidence which helps contain these people, which provides you with some fodder. They are probably going to try the same nonsense. They're going to raise all kinds of speech and debate clause excuses for not showing up. All that's going to be thrown to the side. And eventually, I think these crazy people are going to have to come before the committee. I thought what you were going to say, Harry, is would the committee ever call Donald Trump? And that, I think, you wouldn't, actually. You would not? I would not. Just as a grand jury doesn't call the target, first of all, Well, I guess it would be fun to have him claim the Fifth Amendment. And maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. But you're going to get a three ring circus for him. And you're going to feed the political grinding machine that is the right wing media to make this a complete shit show. And I don't think they ultimately need it because everything that we need to know about Donald Trump, he's offering up. He keeps telling us. We don't need to put him under oath. These are all admissions against interest. What is he going to tell us under oath that some very fine reporter couldn't probably get him to admit or he hasn't said to one of these people? So I think the equities here or the strategy here would weigh not in favor of calling him, but in favor of calling everybody else.
3: Amazing. We're talking about this in 48 hours ago, we were wondering, could they take another baby step? Man, I'd like to go on this for hours. Rick and Allison, final thoughts on January 6th on Bannon, Merrick Garland, Chutkin, any of that whole brew that at least today is breaking very heavily in favor of justice. The wheels of justice grind slow but fine, as they say.
5: We need to keep reminding people of how vile and how violent it was. And I I can't believe that people are whitewashing it and pretend to not remember and are trying to claim that it wasn't as bad as it was. We have the video every time we play it, even just a snippet of it, as we did. Today, literally, we played, I think, three seconds of it, of hang my pants, hang my pants. They're frothing at the mouth and so much more bloodthirsty than you remember in your head. And so every time we play it, I'm stunned and we need to keep playing. it.
3: The identity and skill of committee staff has just gotten way more important because you're going to have people required to show up who will show up and will be squirrely bobbing and weaving and not recalling, et cetera. And they're going to really need to just pin them to the wall to get straight answers because now they may actually be able to. And I'll say one more thing. This feels like not just a good day, but a breakthrough day. It's hard to see it rolling back toward injustice, but it has in the past. So I just want to take a deep breath and temper the hope and excitement with the knowledge that who knows what's left in the bag of tricks for the bad guys.
2: I think it is one of those things where what you saw today was institutions and norms in American life actually working. And we've had five years where those things were either crapped on or ignored or bypassed, or we just let them slip. And today's one of those days where justice and law actually still, as the underpinnings of a civil society, show that they still exist. And as much as I want to dunk on Bannon— I'm delighted the DOJ did this with dispatch,
3: but fairness. He put himself in this box and they closed the gate. I just think it's a good day for the country. A gate that's been open to everyone's, not just frustration, but befuddlement for years. It's time now for our sidebar feature which generally explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. This week will be a little different. We're going to give you an excerpt of the interview we just published with me and George Will in a long discussion of his latest book, American Happiness and Discontents, and other events of his life. So have a listen at this excerpt from our interview with George Will. Let me switch now to a topic that I'm personally very interested in and that's the Supreme Court and the courts in general and your views here seem to have undergone a transformation where you know you would still both characterize yourself and think it a very important point that the judiciary be small c conservative But you see there now being a very active, unsettled dispute among self-styled conservatives between a kind of hands-off deference to political branches as a defining characteristic and aggressive intervention in the service of liberty and against all these effects of big government that we've been talking about. So can you just spell that out, both the evolution of your views and where also you currently stand?
4: Yes, I can. In my 52 years in Washington, I've changed 180 degrees with regard to the courts. When I arrived on the first day of the first year of the 1970s, January 1st, 1970, I was a typical conservative in the sense that I had recoiled against some of the freewheeling jurisprudence of the Warren Court, the promiscuous creation of unenumerated rights in various decisions, and therefore I was by default for judicial restraint and judicial deference to the political branches. I have changed. Now, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, If the American people want to go to hell, I will help them. It's my job. <laughs> he meant if majorities want something, majorities should get it. Let's go back to central Illinois. I grew up in Champaign, Urbana. According to local lore, Lincoln, a traveling, prosperous railroad lawyer, was in the Champaign County Courthouse. When he learned that Stephen A. Douglas, Illinois senator, had passed the kansas nebraska Act, which was supposed to solve the problem. The problem was, what do we say about slavery in the territories where the federal government did control things? Could there be slaves, et cetera, et cetera? Stephen A. Douglas's answer was popular sovereignty in the territories. Vote slavery up, vote slavery down. It's a matter of moral indifference. The morally important point is majority should rule Lincoln's ascent to greatness began in his recoil against this. He said, no, America is not about a process majority rule. It's about a conditioned liberty. Now, I've actually been on this for a while. I wrote my doctoral dissertation at Princeton in 1964 through seven. I was there. And the title of my dissertation was Beyond the Reach of Majorities. The phrase came from the second of the flag salute cases. In 1939, in Minersville v. Gebitis, the Supreme Court said it is okay for Pennsylvania to require Jehovah's Witness children against their faith to salute the flag because we need national unity, that's a legitimate public goal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just four years later, during wartime, in West Virginia v. Barnett, the court reversed itself and said... The very purpose of a Bill of Rights is to place certain things beyond the reach of majorities above the vicissitudes of politics. And I think that's what the courts are for, is a constitution is inherently counter-majoritarian. The First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. Even if the majority wants it, can't have it, sorry, we've decided that. That's off the table. Constitutions set limits to majority rule. I'm all for that.
3: Thank you very much, George Will. The rest of that interview is currently available at patreon.com slash talking feds, where we normally post material for subscribers. But given the importance and quality of this discussion, we're making it available to everybody for the next week, after which it will return along with the other Talking Books interviews to subscriber-only status.
6: Equitable access to high-quality health care is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than 1 million health care supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit OurHealthCalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again, that's OurHealthCalifornia.org.
3: Speaking of institutions that work sometimes well, sometimes not so well, we have one of these really difficult situations where the whole country is focused on a state trial in Wisconsin, the Rittenhouse trial, and it is taking on outsized meaning and feeding directly into the sort of torrents of partisan politics that are roiling the country. We have closing testimonies all in, closing arguments are coming next let's just first focus a little bit on what's happening in the courtroom. And I don't mean Allison and Rick, the lawyerly fine points, but just generally. So Rittenhouse took the stand, which immediately became the centerpiece and the point of high drama of the case, swamps, everything else. How'd it go? how do you do? How's this trial stand with the evidence now in?
5: Well, we took it live, and so we covered every second of it and watched it rapidly, And I had the trial lawyers on with us who couldn't understand what the prosecution was doing. So our attorneys who were watching it thought that he was sort of going in circles and never getting to the heart of the matter and not getting to the point, and they couldn't understand exactly where he was trying to lead Rittenhouse in terms of what's the point? Is the point that had this 17-year-old kid? not crossed state lines, and brought an illegal AR-15 style rifle with him, that none of this would have happened. Because if that was the point, the prosecutor seemed sort of mired in minutiae that wasn't getting to that. For me, obviously somebody who's not a lawyer, and I defer to you lawyers, I understand this is about self-defense. And if you think that you are being killed, I guess you can shoot your AR-15. But it came out in the testimony This kid doesn't know what kind of ammo is in the AR 15. He doesn't know if the bullets are chambered in the gun. I mean, he's walking around with this weapon of war, let's face it, and doesn't know what he's doing. And what's that expression? When you're a hammer, every problem in the world looks like a nail. When you bring an AR 15 to a protest, what do you think is going to happen when you confront a problem? How do you think you're going to solve your problems there when there's tension or whatever arises? So I just can't get past that those mistakes led to two people being killed and one person being shot. But somehow the prosecutor wasn't, I didn't feel, sort of diving in and dwelling on all that preamble stuff.
1: Yeah, he was trying to make a much more, at least at times, this kind of minute-by-minute, second-by-second analysis by which he said, well, wasn't it true that by that time the crowd was away? Wasn't it true that by that time there was no one to give first aid to? And I don't think that's particularly effective because, as you say, in the moment, the standard is what a reasonable person would do, or in this case, would a reasonable person use force. I think most jurors are going to be sympathetic to the fact that although at that moment in time that the line might be up the block, or at this moment in time, the gas station might have been well defended, that People can be, as this chaos is going on around them, very scared, very inclined to defend themselves. And I don't think that's a sympathetic argument at all for the prosecution. I think they should have, it's too late now, obviously, minimized the level of detail. And as Alison said, focused on the precipitating actions that put him there. And I think the other thing that is going on here is this dichotomy that we all know in our bones, that if Kyle Rittenhouse were Black, this would be an entirely different case. There would be an entirely different assumption about what's reasonable, what's not reasonable. The jury would be assessing things extremely differently than they are now. And I think this is one of these reminders that, once again, there is a, I hate to use the because it's now become a hackneyed, but that there is such systematic bias within the legal system that you may get the technically right decision on a self-defense case, but that is going to seem very unjust and very out of kilter with many other cases in which the defendant was African-American or the victim was African-American, and we decided that somehow he was menacing the uh, police officer or somehow there was a justified shooting. And that, I think, is the subtext for everything that is going on in that courtroom. And you do have this uneasy feeling that there's not going to be a nice resolution where people feel that justice is done, whichever way this comes out.
3: It's almost always a problem when you have these cases that are happening on the one hand in a courtroom and on the other sort of, in the country with broader overtones, but Allison, I want to answer your question in two ways. What what was the prosecutor doing? First, I'm pretty sure under Wisconsin law, if he can show that Rittenhouse was actually provocative, inserting himself in the situation, that slightly changes the legal standard, and I think the judge has ruled it and said that means that I think the jury is going to have to find that he couldn't have retreated at all. When you've sort of inserted yourself, it changes your legal obligation. Though still, by the way, the burden always remains on the prosecution. But the bigger point is this, that you ask that question, and it's a very reasonable question, means... It was professional malpractice. It's the centerpiece of trial. Every single question should have been crisp and left a little bit more blood on the floor. And he was wandering and making some mistakes and leading with his chin. And I'm a former prosecutor, so it it pains me to say it, but you really saw sort of a clinic in how somebody shouldn't cross-examine a defendant. And notice when the prosecutor made another bumble by commenting on Rittenhouse's silence, the defense could have moved right away for a mistrial and it Didn't. That spoke volumes. That showed you that they think their odds are pretty good and they don't want the mistrial. They later said, We want a mistrial, but with prejudice. That's just the sort of shoot the moon version. But that they didn't go right away and say, Give us a mistrial, as would happen nine out of 10 times, shows that they think it's going pretty well in the courtroom for them.
2: So, as the resident Southerner, I grew up around guns. I own guns. I shoot. I hunt. I'm an amateur gunsmith. But my kids, they grew up around them, supervised, using them. And as we all know, 17-year-old boys are the repository of great judgment and, and emotional steadiness. And this is like outside the legal thing. What the hell is wrong with his parents? Yeah. What the hell is wrong with his mom? Hey,
3: mom, can I have a ride?
2: Mom, can I have a ride? I can take my Air 15 to the rally. Uh, I yeah. mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. It bothers me tremendously. But it's become like everything else we have now is a, this culture war flashpoint where you've got people putting Kyle Rittenhouse shirts, you know, logos with Kyle Rittenhouse on them. And he's become this sort of hero of the right. And eventually the kid will have a Fox News gig. If the arc runs like I think it'll run, it'll go to Turning Point USA or whatever and become part of this culture war meme thing that a normal human being would be consumed with regret, no matter whether it was self-defense or not. And guys, I'm going to tell you, I'm not a lawyer, but this prosecution did not make the case To me as an outside observer, just because they were discursive, they didn't seem like they were on point. I think they could have narrowly crafted something and they went for this second by second narrative of what was who was where, what was it? And I got to tell you, I think the kid's going to be acquitted I think he's going to walk. I think it's going to be a big shit show. I don't think it's great for the country, but I do go back beyond the legal question. 17 year old guys, when I was 17 years old, I was an epic jackass. You can't underestimate how bad the judgment of a 17-year-old boy is.
5: And and Rick, I just want to say one more thing to that. I think you're right about his trajectory, that he is now this folk hero or whatever, or he'll have a Fox News gig. And that baby-faced boy who doesn't know what ammo he has in his gun, who doesn't know how to use his gun, who is so skittish that he has to shoot anybody coming towards him, that's their hero. I don't know what to make of that. That's their hero that they're going to put on a pedestal.
3: I'll just say this, any time that a trial, which should be on the facts and evidence in a courtroom, becomes one of these memes, as Rick puts it, in a broader occasion for discussion in society, it's a problem, and here it really is because it's right along the, the seam of the culture wars. And there's a chance that even if he's acquitted of the more serious charges, he might be convicted, say, of possession of that gun, but I think it will play as a victory for him and who knows if he's the next you know hillbilly elegy guy (laughs) all right there you go out of time started jubilant ended a little depressed let's return to jubilation and the triumph of the rule of law for just five more seconds and yay merrick garland yay the january doj DOJ, etc i think this is a good day not to do our talking five Final feature because it's just too much big stuff to ponder between January 6th and Renaissance. Oh, I had had one ready. I
1: had one ready. All right. (laughs) Okay. The good guys won one.
3: Oh, you were going to do that no matter what the answer was? Yeah. How, yeah. This was the question, of course. Are you glad about the Atlanta Braves? No, I'm just kidding. We did have a, we did have a question prepared, but seriously, it's a big, big day. And that's usually sure. a kind of leavening final note. Let's leave the news to settle as it will. Thank you so much, Jen Rubin, Allison Camerota, Rick Wilson, for being with us on this big breaking news day and hope to see you again soon on Talking Fed all right we are out of time thank you very much to allison jen and rick and thank you very much to listeners for tuning in to talking feds if you like what you've heard please tell a friend to subscribe to us on apple podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts and please take a moment to rate and review this podcast You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. Those include our full Talking book series from this season, consisting of... Eric Swalwell, Carol Leonig, and Phil Rucker, Fiona Hill, Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, Adam Schiff, and now George Will. It's a great series and it's available to everyone for the next week and then available to subscribers. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, assistant producer Matt McArdle, sound engineering by Adam Macias, David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers, production assistance by Ray Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard, Our consulting producers are Dustin Canals and Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to the Dean of Washington Letters, George Will, for his longer interview on his new book, American Happiness and Discontent, and for the excerpt that you heard in our sidebar today. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds. It's a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Litman. Talk to you later.